0: I'm going to say a phrase and I want you to think about what it means to you, what it stirs up in you. So here's the phrase. Listen to this. Are you listening? Participation in the life of the church. Participation in the life of the church. What does that mean to you? Does that stir up anything in you? Do you want that? Do you want participation in the life of the church? Why would you, why would you want that? And if you do want that, what what does it practically, what does it practically really mean for you to participate in the life of the local church? I think these are really important questions and really big questions, kind of meta questions. And I think this passage that we encounter this morning, this story in Acts chapter 6, that we encounter as we continue journeying through the book of Acts, on this 40-week journey that we're in the midst of, reading through the book of Acts, um, I think this story speaks to some of those questions. And so I hope this morning, as you're asking yourself those questions, and I hope you do, those are questions worth wrestling over, that I hope this story will be a help and a challenge for you as well. So here's our roadmap for how we're gonna look at and experience this story in Acts chapter six. Um, Two different movements, movement number one, movement number two. And then in response to that, based on that, I have what I think is an important pastoral word for you specifically, Christ City Church. So first, movement number one happens in verse one and we'll call this movement, if you're taking notes, we'll call this movement the problem, the problem. So we see in verse 1 that this movement of the early church, this movement of Jesus is growing and is expanding and is, is catching like wildfire. In Acts 6 verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, Now, Luke's writing this, and when Luke says that, that the number of the disciples was increasing, he's not messing around. Like, there's some numbers, there's some data given to us so far in the book of Acts. Look at this in Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and speaks and preaches this amazing sermon, and then Luke says this, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000, just like that after one sermon. Wow, the Holy Spirit fell. That's amazing. And then a couple of chapters later in Acts chapter four, Luke tells us, many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So this is a movement with literally thousands of men and women and children who are committing to follow Jesus as their Lord. This This is no small thing. Like, this is a movement with some traction. If you've been here with us uh, so far throughout this series, you'll know what I mean when I say this that the goose is loose, right? If you don't know what that means, you can go back and listen, especially on Acts chapter 2. The goose, the Holy Spirit is at work, and this thing is crazy. Like, things are happening. And you can imagine the complexities that would arise with such like fast and quick growth, maybe you've experienced that before. Maybe uh, an organization that you work for or that you've been a part of or uh, that you have purchased things from, maybe a restaurant, maybe you've experienced something just growing too fast and the people, the leaders, it's kind of administration like just couldn't keep up and it was just chaotic and crazy. That may very well be happening here in Acts chapter 6. But that is not the problem that we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It's not mere complexity because of tremendous and rapid growth. Like there's something much deeper and much darker than that going on here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. So a little bit of background to help you see this. First of all, you need to know or remember that the earliest followers of Jesus, uh, were Jewish men and women and children that initially, uh, and so far in the story, in the book of Acts, the church is a movement within the Jewish tradition. Spoiler alert. We're going to see in a few weeks, this crazy story where the movement grows to include those outside of the Jewish community as well. So get ready for that. The goose, man, the goose is moving. Um, so as followers of Yahweh, these men and women would have been committed students of their scriptures, their Hebrew scriptures, which, of course, their Hebrew scriptures, uh, those are our, that's our Hebrew, that's our Old Testament. So if you've ever read the Old Testament, you've probably seen before that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, has a deep love and a tremendous heart for society and the world's most vulnerable and marginalized. In fact, there are over 300 references throughout the Old Testament alone, different verses where God is giving commandments and instructions about how his people are to care for and are to meet the needs of society's most vulnerable We see over and over and over, especially these four categories of people throughout the Old Testament. Um, One scholar helpfully called these different categories the quartet of the vulnerable, the quartet of the vulnerable. Orphans, widows, sojourners, or to use a word that we're more familiar with in our 21st century day, immigrants. And the materially poor, orphans, widows, immigrants, the materially poor, you can't read two pages in your Old Testament and not see that God has a deep love for these people. The quartet of the vulnerable, especially in these days, they were people who had no rights, they had no voice, they were destitute, and they were without hope. And one of the clear One of the clear messages of the Bible is this, that if you're an orphan or if you're a widow, if you're an immigrant, if you're materially poor, it may feel like society has cast you out and society may indeed be against you, but God, Yahweh, is for you. God is on your side you can't miss it, especially in the Hebrew scriptures that God is on the side of the oppressed, that God loves deeply the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the materially poor. Now, the early church, of course, as a movement within the Jewish community, they were practically living this out. We've already seen as we've read these stories in Acts how the earliest fathers of Jesus were radically generous with their stuff. Remember they would sell all of their stuff and they would give the money to the church so that the church could have resources and funds to care for its own community. And so we see here in Acts chapter 6 verse 1 that there's some sort of like distribution of food that happens every day so that widows and the materially poor and all these different people have their most basic needs in life met. And so a problem arises. They're Hellenist widows, and a little bit of background about that. Hellenist widows would have been uh, Greek-speaking Jewish women. They're the Hellenists. This is the first time that this word shows up in the New Testament. And then there are the Hebraic Jews as well. The Hellenists were um, not necessarily from Jerusalem, but may have been from Alexandria, different parts of the world, and they spoke Greek, they read Greek, They were influenced by Greek customs. Therefore, the Hebrew Bible that they would have read would would be something called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So if if you speak Greek, there you go. There's an Old Testament for you. And the Hebraic Jews were from Jerusalem and surrounding area. They spoke Hebrew and mostly Aramaic. But they would have read the Hebrew Old Testament in its original language, Hebrew, And so they would have looked down upon the Hellenists. Like these are people who are impure. We haven't been influenced by Greek culture, but you have. We read the pure word of God, but you read the Greek translation of God's word. Hellenists to Hebraic Jews would have been impure. They would have been outsiders. And so we see that there's complaining that the Hellenist widows are being overlooked And so you see now with that background, with that context, that this is more than just like organizational complexity because we've grown too much. Do you see that? It's not just like, man, we are so sorry. Things just grew really fast, got a little bit out of control. That was an accident and that was a mistake. That's probably not what's going on here. What's happening instead is injustice and oppression, racism. We see that right here in the story of the early church. The Jewish people were an oppressed people living under Roman rule. And the Hellenistic Jews would have been the oppressed people within the oppressed people, the minority within the minority, the lowest of the low. And we see here them being held down, them being disadvantaged to the advantage of the Hebraic widows. Now, first of all, as we encounter this, you have to see that this is like this is amazing that this is even in our Bible, right? Like for me, this affirms the truthfulness and the validity of the stories that we have for us in Scripture. Because consider, like if you're trying to fabricate this movement, like if you're making this stuff up, you would not include stories like this one. Maybe if you're really, really ingenious, you might think we can't make ourselves look too awesome, so we have to include some sorts of flaws in here. But if you're going to fabricate even some flaws about yourself, you wouldn't fabricate flaws like this. Racism and discrimination and injustice and oppression, especially for a people who worship a God who cares so deeply about society's most oppressed. You wouldn't fabricate details and stories like this one. So it's amazing. We just have to take a moment to realize that it's amazing that we have these true and good stories. There's another thing amazing about this, and it's that we see again in Scripture this theme that we've already encountered this morning that God cares about society's most voiceless, that in God's economy, the voiceless have a voice. Think about this. Like if you are an oppressed person living under the harsh rule of the Roman government, you don't have a voice. And if you speak up, your voice is going to be squashed out. It might even be violent. But here we see in the early church the exact opposite happening. There's complaining happening. The voiceless are finding their voice and they're not squashed out. There's no violence here. Instead, we see in the movement of the early church because they're followers of Jesus that they follow in the pattern of Jesus and the voiceless have a voice. Jesus, the son of man, did not come to be served, but he came to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. The powerless are lifted up and the powerful are are lowered down. This is the economy of Jesus and this is the pattern of the early church. And we desire at Christ City Church for that to be our pattern as well. So you can know that if in society you feel like I don't have a voice, then you have a voice here and you matter here. You you belong here. This means that if you find yourself with real needs, financial needs even, then we, like the earliest fathers of Jesus, we, we want to hear about that. We want to even come alongside you and consider how we might be able to help you. In fact, there's this little-known page on our website that I think is really important. Here's a screenshot of it. It's ChristCity.org care. ChristCity.org care that if you have any needs, whatever they might be, we we as pastors and leaders, we want to we be able to have a conversation with you and listen to you. So if you ever need to get in touch with us, here's, here's an easy way to do that. We also want to be a church that's about justice. That's why for the past few weeks, a few weeks ago, Robin presented this challenge for you called the Generous Project. We're following in the pattern of the early church church. The challenge was, hey, what would it look like for you just to be radically generous? For you to go above and beyond whatever normal giving you have in place at Christ City Church and just just give of yourself, give of your finances so that we can come around people and help meet the needs of those within our community. And you were generous. It was so encouraging. In just a couple of weeks, uh, mostly folks just giving cash, we raised um, over $1,000, and we were able to do some really cool things with that money that you generous, generously gave. A couple of quick stories. Um, first, there's, there's actually a really cool ministry that's run out of this church building, this facility. It's called Compassion Clinic. Um, a couple of our story groups, uh, the story group that I'm a part of, we're one of those. We're uh, partnering with and volunteering there regularly. A really cool ministry where doctors and nurses provide um, free healthcare for people who can't afford or who don't have access to healthcare but who need it. A lot of people who fall within that quartet of the vulnerable, especially the sojourner or the immigrant. And so we just get to hang out with these people and be with them. And so, because of your generosity, we were able to contribute and uh, purchase much needed medicines um, for all these different people who are being served here. Here are a couple pictures, I think, that are scrolling by me. There's Jessica. And some different folks helping check people in and helping with some administrative stuff. There's also a, um, a young single mother who we've been in relationship with for a young, number of years now. Some of you have developed um, a real friendship with her. And uh, recently she had some car trouble and she uh, has had a hard time holding out a job because she doesn't have reliable transportation, to provide means for herself and for her young daughter. And so because of your generosity, we were able to, to chip in and say, hey, we'll help you, we got you, we got you, we'll, we'll help with your car. In fact, in that process, we, we found out that there's, I don't, I'm, I'm no mechanic, I have no idea what I'm talking about. There's something else that's wrong with the car that mechanics tell us if we get this fixed, we'll be done, she'll be good to go. And so it's, there's actually a, an additional cost, $450 more, and so I want to challenge you, like, hey, as a church, if we want to get behind her and say, we, we got it, we'll take care of you, um, we want to help meet your needs as the body of Jesus, followers of Jesus, um, then maybe you can contribute above and beyond again this morning. Um, on your way out, there are two boxes where you can, you can give however the Lord leads you, and we'd love to be able to help, help her meet that need. So I'm so encouraged by our generosity, being people who follow this Yahweh, who loves the most needy. So movement number two in verse two. We're almost 20 minutes in and we're done with one verse. We got like 14 more. So I'm just kidding. The rest will be really, really quick pace. But isn't it like that? We have to take note that scripture is so deep, right? Like we could, there's so much I want to say about one verse. We could spend hours just diving into this one verse. God's word is really rich and deep. It's good. All right. Um, So because of the voiceless, have a voice within this Jesus movement. The 12, meaning the apostles, hear about all these complaints that are taking place. They hear about injustices that are happening and they take, place, they take action uh, to fix, to right those wrongs. So we see something really cool happening here in movement number two, which we can call, if you're taking notes, from organic to organized, organic to organized. There's something really cool that happens in verse two. Up until this point in the story of Acts and the story of the church and the story of the earliest followers of Jesus, the Jesus movement was, was really primitive and very organic. Like there weren't any really clear roles or distinctions. It was just a movement of thousands of people following Jesus in community together. But we see here in verse two, some really good news. As the apostles, as the 12 get really clear about, here's our role, here's our lane, here's how God has wired and gifted us, and we're going to run with this, we see some really good news, and the good news is this, that the ministry of the church for the life of the world is not limited to the gifts of its leaders. Isn't that good news? Like the ministry of the church for the life of the world is so much bigger than my gifts or Robin's gifts or Jamin's gifts. That's really good news. It's not limited to the capacity of her leaders We see increased clarity here in Acts chapter 6, verse 2. Read this with me. It would not be right, the 12 say the apostles, for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. The first time I read this, when I was thinking about this sermon, that sounded really mean and sarcastic to me. Did anybody else pick that up as you read it? Um, it would not be right for us to neglect ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. It sounds like, upon first glance, like that there's this um, beneath me sort of attitude, right? Like that's beneath our gifts. There's an A team here, and there's a B team here. But if you keep reading, you see that that's clearly not the case. That's clearly not the case. There's no A team, and there's no B team in the ministry of the local church for the life of the world. And here's what alerts me to that. Stephen. One word, Stephen. Stephen is one of the seven men who is empowered here to participate in ministry, empowered to be a leader in the context of the church. And just look at this man. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, we see Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. Stephen performed great wonders and signs among the people. And then because Stephen is doing such crazy stuff, he incites this opposition movement against him. And so then in Acts chapter 6, verse 15, we see Stephen standing before um, the Sanhedrin on trial. And we read this, that all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. Listen to this. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What? Isn't that crazy? And then in Acts chapter 7, another spoiler alert because we'll be here next week. They're all looking at Stephen like, what does this man have to say? This person who is filled with wisdom and filled with the Spirit of God, performing these signs and wonders, what is he going to say? This man whose face is shining like the face of an angel. And then Acts chapter 7, he gives this speech. That's the longest recorded speech in Acts. It's longer than anything that's recorded from Peter or Paul or the other apostles. So, what's clear to me is that Stephen is not doing B team sort of ministry. I think we would all agree about that. I think the history of the tradition of the church would agree with us about that. Stephen, who ultimately is the first martyr of his faith because of his faith in Jesus, has been honored as a saint in the tradition of the church. Stephen's not doing B team sort of ministry. There's no A team and there's no B team here. But we see these people empowered to run in their lane. And then we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that when the church empowers people and they run in their lane, then the church flourishes. Look at this in Acts 6, 7. The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of the priests became obedient to the faith. So all these priests in the Jewish tradition are converting and are saying hey we want to follow Jesus too amazing things are happening as people are empowered and as people run in their lane so this begs the question for us Christ City Church what's your lane how has God gifted and wired you who has God created you to be What's your lane that God is inviting you to run in here in the life of Christ City Church? Now, those are some some more kind of big meta questions. Like, how do you even go about beginning to wrap your mind around that and discern what is God calling me to do? There's actually a weird hint kind of hidden here in the text. So here's a question to help you discern some of those big questions. What are you moved to complain about? What are you moved to complain about? I know y'all got complaints. I hear some of them. What are you moved to complain about? Maybe tune into that. You expect a pastor to stand in front of you and be like, y'all don't complain. Stop your complaints. And I'm telling you, like, hey, listen to what's going on underneath your complaints. And let's have a conversation about that. Like, bring your complaints to me. I want to listen to you. Because here's what's going on underneath your complaints. Underneath your complaining, there are all these feelings. Anger may be one of them. And anger is not necessarily a bad thing. Anger alerts you to what you're passionate about. Maybe how God is inviting and calling you to participate in the life of this local church. So what are you moved to complain about? Let's talk about that. But notice what happens when the apostles hear these complaints. In 21st century American church, it's expected that if you have complaints, like the church staff, the pastors, like, we got it. We're just going to do it for you. But that is not what happens here in the early church. In fact, it helps the apostles clarify their role all the more. Like, hey, we know our lane we are really clear about what God is calling us to. So some of you guys are going to have to step up and be about this ministry. So here's the scary thing about when you bring your complaints to us. It may mean you, like, not only finding your lane and owning your lane, but actually starting to move in your lane. Like, what's the point of a track and lanes on a track if we're just all going to stand? No, that's not what a lane is. A lane is to run and for you to know where you're going, for you to stay in your lane and know where you are, for you to uh, know where I am and for me to stay in my lane. See, we're not a program-driven church. We're a people-driven church. What that means is that if you come to us with complaints, we're not just going to create a program to plug you into so that you can be a consumer and a fly on the wall. Like, yeah, we'll just hire some more staff. No, we want to empower you. We want to help you discern your passion and what God is calling you to, to. Um, Jamin has said this quote before from a pastor. Uh, Jamin says, we don't want to plug you in. We want to light you up. We don't want to plug you in. We want to light you up. And what that means is, is we just don't want to plug you into something where you can just sit back and not be known, not have to take risks, not have to be uncomfortable, be a fly on the wall. Instead, we want to see you lit up to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be empowered, to be filled with passion and to be able to run and do things, do ministry here in our church and in our city. Paul uses in, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this metaphor, he uses a metaphor, he gives us a picture for the life of the local church and it's the picture of a body, you may have heard this before. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, the church is like a body that has many different members. And so I thought about that recently when I was listening to a podcast. And on this podcast, uh, it was um, a chiropractor sharing his story. And I don't know what you think about chiropractors, if you're into that or not, but it was very fascinating listening to this particular chiropractor share his story and why he's so passionate about his craft and here's one thing that he said that was compelling to me he said just consider it and let me say this before I give this metaphor I am really bad at science so if I say something wrong here like let me hear your complaints and we'll know where your passions lie okay so just give me some grace here um, but just consider like if your spine is the part of the central nervous system that's communicating from your brain to all these different organs, nerves being sent out. Then if your spine is only functioning at 85%, then that's the ceiling for every other organ in your body. Does that sound right? Like then your heart can only function at 85%. That's its max capacity. And I think it's similar with the metaphor that Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 12. Like if we're a body together, all of us, and you're only functioning at 40%, then that's our cap as a church, 40%. That's the most we can give to one another and to our city. If you're not even functioning, like if you're not even showing up at all, then we're missing something. Like we cannot be the fullness as a church. We cannot be the fullness of what God has for us here in our city, unless we're all participating as the body of Christ together. So let me close with this pastoral word. That's going to leave you with a little bit of tension that I don't think is contradictory, but I think is really important for you and for us as a church. So some of these questions I threw out at the beginning, participation in the life of the church, what does that even mean? Why do I want to participate in the life of the church? These are real questions that I've been wrestling with some of you with recently. Like we've been talking about these questions together. And here's what I would say to you. Again, something you may not usually hear a pastor stand up and say, uh, but it's this. You don't have to participate. (laughs) Hello. There we go. Man, what? First of all, Matt Brown isn't here today. Thank you, Matt, for giving us second mics. Matt thinks of everything. Um, So thanks, Matt. And thanks, Tyler. Tyler's running things behind the scenes today. Second of all, what crazy timing, you know? Like, like, this is the thing. This is the thing, the most important thing that I have for you this morning, that God has for you this morning. Nothing. So maybe God's trying to tell us, yeah, I take this with a grain of salt. But it's this. Here's what I would say to you that you don't have to participate. Mike's and yeah, there we go. You don't have to participate. What you do have to have, what's mandated, what you need is relationship. Like I think about um, the passage that Chris read earlier, like don't give up meeting together. Stir one another up, encourage one another. You need to be in relationships so or your soul, your heart will wither up and it will die. But a lot of us, myself included, we can tend to have this kind of weird, unhealthy, sick, codependent relationship with the church. And if that's the sort of relationship that you have with the church, then it's impossible for you to participate because all you will be able to do is perform. Here's, here's a statement that I want you to finish in your head that will show you what sort of codependent relationship you have with the church and how you're moved to perform God loves me because blank how would you fill in that blank God loves me because blank all of us live with to varying degrees this sort of paradigm God loves me because blank God loves me because I'm a pastor, because I serve, because I work for this nonprofit, because I live in the city. God loves me because of my awesome doctrine or I have everything figured out. God loves me because of blank. Most of us live with this paradigm. All of us live with, to varying degrees, this paradigm. The right paradigm, the healthy paradigm is, is this. God loves me, period. God loves me. Period. And when you're living with a God loves me because of blank paradigm, you, you, can't, you can't participate. You will only perform. You will only try to prove yourself, make yourself look good. And it won't be a good or healthy thing for you or for anyone else. Many of you are finding life and recovery of life at Christ city. And you come here with a lot of wounds. A lot of those from other churches. And that makes me really, really sad. But I praise God that you're here. I praise God that like life is happening. And it'll happen more and more as you think about this. No, God doesn't love me because blank. God loves me, period. He just loves me. He loves me because he loves me. And that's really good news. To the extent that you get that, you'll be able to show up here and you'll be able to participate and you won't perform and instead you'll just be present. So you don't have to participate, but what I invite you to do is is just to show up and to be present with yourself, with God, with one another, to learn what it means that God just loves you. He loves you a whole, whole lot. And I think as we as a church live into that, we'll be empowered to participate in the life of the church for the good of the world. So let's pray. Lord, what good news it is that you you love us. You just love us. Not because of the things we do or the things we don't do. I pray that that would sink in. I know it'll take a lifetime and then even a lifetime isn't enough, but let it sink into our hearts just a little more this morning. And then as it does, I pray that we would be able to participate in the life of the church for the good of the world, that you would raise us up as leaders, that you would show us what our lane is, you would show us where our passion is and that we would be able to run and Christ City would be a refreshing presence here in Memphis, in London, all around the world, for the glory of your name. Thank you for communion now, where we see, where we get to experience, embody, taste and feel and touch the deep truth and reality that you love us, period. Amen.